Hello and welcome to our podcast, Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is Jazz, If You Don't Feel It. In this episode, we will be outlining the significance of jazz music during the Harlem Renaissance and how its influence transcends past the movement. We will also take a brief look at some important jazz figures like William Grant Still, Duke Ellington, and Louis Armstrong. It is very important in the context of today's lecture to have a working understanding of what the Harlem Renaissance was, so please take a moment to listen to our other podcasts in relation to the era if you are not familiar with the subject. Okay, I feel like jazz is such a hard topic to cover because like so many things that we discuss on this podcast, there's so very much to say about it, but so little time. I could spend a whole year talking about this. So just know that if this episode has you interested in the subject, there are so many things to learn about it. The music theory behind jazz and jazz composers like the three Elisa just mentioned is full chef's kiss. And that's not even going into the iconic women within the jazz scene, like our queens Ethel Waters and Bessie Smith, to name a few. But this is more of a history podcast, and I will try not to go too much into the musical theory aspect. Just know that it is 100% worth looking into. And while I do love doing our little one-person focuses, there are just way too many incredibly important jazz figures to choose from. Anywho, I suppose it's time to get started. Firstly, let's break down what exactly jazz is and how it came to be. Jazz was said to be born in New Orleans during the late 1800s, so it was beginning to take root before the Great Migration or the Harlem Renaissance, but that shouldn't really come as too much of a shock. I think that people often have a warped notion of the Harlem Renaissance. It's not that this amazing writing and philosophy and art and music that came from this period, like, happened overnight. It was a combination of many different fields and industries, particularly cultural ones like the fine arts, becoming more diverse as a whole. But yeah, New Orleans is credited as its birthplace. And it was actually very interesting how they first started forming the genre. It was kind of a part of a different, more consolidated cultural movement. Now, this is because New Orleans has such a rich and intriguing history behind it that we do not have the time to even scratch the surface of today. However, to keep it brief, at the time jazz began to take shape, New Orleans had a very flourishing and very unique, diverse population. There was a strong cultural presence of people from Spanish and French backgrounds, as well as cultural influences from people from African and Caribbean backgrounds, to name just a few of them. According to the second edition of the book titled The History of Jazz by Ted Joya, a quote from page six reads, the resulting amalgam, an unprecedented mixture of European, Caribbean, African, and American elements, made Louisiana into perhaps the most seething ethnic melting pot that the 19th century world could produce. This cultural gum would serve as a breeding ground for many of the great hybrid musics of modern times. Not just jazz, but also Cajun, Zydeco, blues, and other new styles flourished as a result of this laissez-faire environment. So what is jazz exactly? 
Jazz composers did something truly incredible with how the genre was created. They took spirituals and slave songs and essentially revamped them in a new form. If you'll remember our Zora Neale Hurston lecture, I said that she didn't like when slave songs were revamped because she liked them in their most raw form. But that's not the same type of revamping that we're talking about here. In fact, Zora had an ear for jazz and she loved the blues because jazz didn't strip spirituals of their raw form, but rather it incorporated certain elements from them and therefore it didn't seek to better spirituals, it only sought to be inspired by them and to capture their meaningfulness. For instance, once jazz spread to other places outside of New Orleans and found its way into the age of the Harlem Renaissance, composers, very notably among them, William Grant Still, who we will be bringing up a little more later, took common elements from slave songs, like the way that their stanzas and rhythm were set up. They also created swing notes and minor notes in a way that had simply not been done before, at least not in a way that had been so widely spread. For example, to quote an article titled The Harlem Renaissance and American Music by Mike Oppenheim, published in 2013, in reference to William Grant Still, it reads that he incorporated the blues scales and blue notes, flat third and flat seventh, call and response structure and descending melodic contours typical of the blues into the art music genre of a symphony, merging black culture and high art. And not only did they use slave songs, but they also often looked to traditional African music as well. Again, still is not the one who single-handedly invented these specific jazz techniques. It had always been a genre that could fit into many hats because it was created in a way that effortlessly coexisted within these different levels of musical inspiration. So let's talk about what changes that the Harlem Renaissance era brought to the old-fashioned jazz. Firstly, it kind of coexisted with something called the Jazz Age, roughly around the same time period of the 1920s and 30s. It also had a parallel timeline as the Prohibition Era, and often, in cities like Harlem, jazz and blues was the music of choice for speakeasies. That's how we got our babe Gladys Bentley and others like her. We get new techniques like what is referred to as swing, and to sum up that technique with the famous quote by the legendary Louis Armstrong, if you don't feel it, you'll never know it. Which, by the way, interesting side fact about him. It's really not clear whether he preferred Louis or Louis Armstrong, so be aware he might have actually preferred to be called Louis Armstrong. Him preferring Louis specifically is actually backed up by the song Hello Dolly. He says, Hello Dolly, it's Louis. So... He might have referred to himself as Louis, but then again, he did sometimes refer to himself as Louis as well. Lots of people argue that it's pronounced Louis because Louis is the pronunciation of French influence, and he did come from New Orleans, which again had a lot of French influence. Speaking of Armstrong, who is another one of my historic figures that I go nuts for, this man seriously was a freaking talented musician to say the least. He was best known for his mastery of the trumpet, and if you know him by name, that is likely what comes to mind first when thinking of him. But he also had an astounding singing voice, and was a proficient accompanist, too. And those are only a few of his talents, not to mention he was known for having a lovable personality. But what really makes him so notable, at least for our purposes today, was how his ability to musically improvise was revolutionary and kind of opened up the door to the solo instrumental aspect that jazz is often associated with today. 
Before musicians like Armstrong came onto the scene, jazz was often most considered to be a big band affair, as opposed to a genre filled with solos. Because of this, the incorporation of improvisation and solo instrumentalists truly shifted the evolution of jazz, and in many ways, Armstrong sort of served as a stepping stone from older traditional jazz to the newer techniques commonly found in the jazz age. That is not to say he alone ushered in the new wave, only that he played a large part and that he represented a duality between the two. Because, though his personal choice and techniques often were of the new aged persuasion, he was from New Orleans. He had been raised around the beauty of old jazz and he carried an appreciation for it throughout his career and his life. Now, we have talked a lot about how the Harlem Renaissance was this wave of black upliftment, and I think that jazz encapsulates that in such a special way. But that being said, that isn't to say that it was easily received by the broader public without some roadblocks. In fact, remember how I mentioned that the Jazz Age also coexisted with the Prohibition era? Yeah, well, because of this, jazz was sometimes associated with what close-minded people of the time referred to as the risque or taboo behavior of speakeasies. And the distaste for that risque behavior is backed up. Of course, we talked about that with our Gladys Bentley episode. But honestly, from the research that I have done on the subject, much of that hesitation and disinterest that people had towards jazz was extremely racially charged, which I am sure is a shock to no one. I think that's made clear when it comes to figures like Paul Whiteman, which, oof, (laughs) what a name to have in this current context. Whiteman was a well-known composer and orchestra director of the 1920s and 30s. He essentially translated the concept of jazz into an orchestra setting, which was revered in a much more favorable light to a broader audience. The fundamentals of orchestras were more palatable for a white audience. It wasn't too scary or new for them to adjust to. To put it plainly, it was a wonderful technique for the purpose of whitewashing. Whiteman is a controversial name in jazz history. Much of the discomfort surrounding him is how he blatantly appropriated African American culture. His career was fueled by performing and conducting jazz pieces with bands that were predominantly white. He toured all around the world and was met with an abundance of success. He was even awarded the title of King of Jazz by some. So he was out there consistently profiting off of a musical genre that was intended to celebrate and uplift black people, all while many black musicians faced ridicule due to people's assumptions they made about jazz. What's even more ironic that he should be so profitable is that people's biggest critique of his music is that it was flat, that it lacked the depth and flavor that was so often found in jazz, yet he was the one who got crowned the king of jazz by some. 
That isn't the whole story behind him. Many who defend him say that he did what he could for black representation and tried to work with more black creators and musicians, but was often kept from doing so by his management. I have many feelings about white men and people like him during this time. So much white heroism and misguided notions of helping when they aren't actually being helpful, like at all, but we're going to go over that another time and very soon. To stay on track for today, we will leave him behind for now, but before we are done with him completely though, not only did he find success while black musicians did not due to the prejudice and big keeping amounts of racism like Elisa mentioned, in many ways he did make jazz as a musical genre more widely known, and some who are far too forgiving of his shortcomings might argue he helped repair the image surrounding jazz, which in my opinion is a delicate way of saying that he made white people less afraid of it. Imagine being afraid of an entire musical genre just because you're racist. But anyways, that being said, there were prominent black jazz musicians who commended him for his contributions, like Duke Ellington, who we will be talking about more in a second, had this to say in his autobiography. Paul Whiteman was known as the king of jazz, and no one as yet has come near carrying that title with more certainty and dignity. Now, let's kind of switch gears here and talk about the role jazz has when it came to uplifting the black community, because we haven't really quite covered that yet. Okay, so we have amazing writers and thinkers of this time period, like we've gone over, but there's something about jazz that really transcends in ways that are so unique. Just think about music in general. It's literally like the universal language, right? You don't have to speak the same language or come from the same culture to enjoy music of any form, especially something like jazz that is based in this natural flow. Like literally the point of jazz sometimes is to just vibe with it. And it's interesting because as a fan of Langston Hughes, I would actually say that to me, he is almost like jazz personified, you know? Not just because he composed some jazz music himself or that he incorporated jazz technique into his writing style, but because of his universality. Because you don't have to be anything like Hughes. You don't have to share the same experiences that he went through in his life to still find a likeness in yourself in relation to his work. Okay, I'm not trying to make this a Hughes focus part two over here, but I love him and I just had to say that. But anyway, jazz was this amazing blend between so many different cultures, but it really did have this core focus on black culture. And so because of its universal appeal, black culture was really given a chance to be appreciated on a national and even more importantly, international scale. We have brought up the importance of positive black representation before because there are years and years of very damaging images of black people in the media. We have the evils that come with practices like blackface and minstrel shows in general. We have depictions of the dumb and happy slave, the ignorant and helpless uncivilized man. But then you have something like jazz that was unapologetically intertwined with different layers of black culture. And all of a sudden, those images make less and less sense, even to the most ignorant of audiences. There is no way of discerning jazz outside of a broader and distinctly African-American scope. To love jazz was to love something that celebrates black culture. 
Yeah. And remember William Grant Still and Duke Ellington, both of whom I mentioned before? Well, both of them, similar to Whiteman's style, took a different approach to jazz. They didn't so much lean into the solo aspect, but rather reformatted it into an orchestra style. William Grant Still, for instance, had highly renowned works like his well-known symphony, which was called Afro-American Symphony. And to quote Oppenheim from his article, this series of tone poems presents Still's conception of history, culture, and psychology of African Americans. In his representation, Black Americans rise up from a history of slavery and sorrow to a position of self-empowerment and triumph. William Grant Still also worked on an opera with Langston Hughes called Troubled Island, which, quoting Oppenheim again here, challenges the viewer to contemplate the importance of history, education, and the cultural contributions of Black America and American culture in general. William Grant Still broke so many barriers that were present for African Americans. He was the first African American to conduct a major symphony orchestra, the first to have his symphony performed by an industry-leading orchestra, the first to have his opera performed by a major opera company, and the first to have his opera performed on TV. So lots of firsts for the African American community for sure. We see some key differences between William Grant Still and Duke Ellington. Ellington actually preferred to call his own work American music as opposed to just strictly jazz. He left behind notions like swing and solo improv for more structured harmonies and bigger band sounds. Because of this, his music was often seen as more appealing to a larger audience, which earned him fame across the globe, but especially in the United States and Europe. Oppenheim said in his article, Though Ellington presented African Americans as culturally distinct, he sought to draw this identity into unity with American culture. Duke Ellington's take on jazz might make you feel reminiscent of white men's, but they were distinctly different, and we will talk more about that very soon. Again, we're going to save it for a different podcast. To look back on the genre of jazz and how much it has changed during the years is almost overwhelming. In many ways, it has helped to establish the significance of the influence of African American culture. It has evolved throughout the years even more so and is a style of music that has a graceful presence within a variety of popular music all around the world. Even though jazz has influenced the music and culture in the United States both in black communities and in mainstream media, its influence is often only mentioned in the context of the Harlem Renaissance. This is most certainly due, at least in part, to the woefully repressive way history is taught here in the United States, especially when it comes to black history, or any history that doesn't uplift white men, really. But it is also because jazz truly encapsulates the soul of the Harlem Renaissance. It incorporated old traditions with a new age style. It allowed for individuals to shine through improvised solos, but also for bands to come together to create amazing music. More than anything else, it commended the unique richness of Black culture and celebrated every Black person, whether they were highly educated or not. 
This positive and uplifting spirit of the jazz era was incredibly empowering during that time and continues to be one of the richest legacies in our Black history, even as the powers that be do everything they can to make Black people feel small and our culture and history appear primitive and unrefined. They are unable to deny the long-lasting inspiration and influence of jazz. Ooh, gave me chills over here. <laughs> All right, well, it is time for us to take a break, get some tea, and we will be right back with you. And now, a word from our sponsors. This week is made possible by... Friends, morning possessions. Do you wake up feeling grumpy and irritable? Do you ever have a hard time speaking to another soul before the early morning hours have ended? Have you ever evaded the judgmental eyes that you find waiting for you in the mirror before you have had a proper cup of tea? Then you may too suffer from morning possessions. If you want to make sure that Ren can afford the exorcism she needs to rid herself of her morning misery, then you can donate at Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi account or join us on Patreon. Ren's morning possessions. She just wants to go back to sleep. We're back. Okay, so that song is again by the talented Dr. Steven Weber. Can we just talk about how amazing that song is for a second? First of all, it's called Floating. Doesn't it actually make you feel like you're floating? Yes. Like, honestly, it's like if gravity with Sandra Bullock was less chaotic if she was just nicely floating through space mixed with that fun playful energy of charlie and his grandfather in willy wonka and the chocolate factory oh my gosh literally yes (laughs) and you all should actually feel pretty special because you have gotten to hear a sneak peek of the song it's not actually released yet he has an album coming out with songs that all end in ing so ing and i am so pumped for it like if that's how incredible floating came out I don't even know if my heart is ready for a whole album of emotions like that. The release date for the album is November 6th, so please be on the lookout for that. And just a few words about what Floating was and what his purpose behind writing the piece Floating, this is what he had to say. The title Floating refers to three planes, the realm of the sky and clouds, the realm of the ocean or water, and the emotional and or spiritual drift or plane. I mean, one of the things that I really love is not just his music, but how he speaks about his music. It just has so much passion and realness in it. And then when you hear that and listen to the song, it enriches the experience that much more. Yes, like knowing that and hearing it again and thinking about it on those different layers. Wow. I know. And you can tell that he really did capture that. Like, oh, it's amazing. Literally, I can't wait. I hope that you all are as excited as I am. All right, Elisa, how are you feeling? 
Um, a little cold because I decided to dress comfy and your your definition of comfy doesn't also equate to warm. It usually does. Yeah. But today I I wanted like loose oversized sweater. Wouldn't that also be warm though? A sweater? I mean, sorry, loose oversized t shirt. Oh. <laughs> and also I was looking at you, I was like, girl, that is not a sweater. <laughs> I should have done loose oversized sweater because I'm cold, but that's fine. But <laughs> mental health wise, I think I'm having a pretty good day. I'm really proud of myself for the way that I'm managing my work life balance um, mm-hmm. this year because last year it was really rough. I'm still hyper aware of when the sun is setting here. Um, it sets really early here. Yeah. Yeah. But finding ways to make the night just as rich as the daytime normally would be. Because even though I thrive at night, there's just something different about it. Yeah. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. There's something about sunlight that can nurture the soul. Yes. Yeah. It's one of my favorite kinds of warmth. Just like sitting in a, like a patch of sunlight. Yes. Like oh, a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing great. Yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> Um, I'm doing okay. I would definitely say that I usually actually, for some reason, I have, this is very strange. This is not the case for most people. I actually have spring depression. So I do not get winter depression. I actually do really well during winter. And I haven't really been able to do things that I usually would during this time of year (laughs) that I'd be thriving (laughs) doing because of our current circumstances COVID wise. So because of that, that hasn't been super great, but you know. Um, what kind of tea are you having, Elisa? Today, in addition to the 12 scoops of ginger that still somehow aren't enough for me, <laughs> I'm having a Nigerian black tea. It's really good. It's very smooth, I would say. Ooh. What are you having? Okay, so I'm actually having one of my blends that I made. I'm really proud of this one. I'm so excited. I had to have this one because we did jazz today. Our topic was jazz. This I created this blend in inspiration from Billie Holiday. Now, Billie Holiday was a bit later on. She still is revered as a Harlem Renaissance singer by a lot of people, but I kind of like am on the fence about it because she was born in 1915. More of a question mark there of whether or not she was a part of the Harlem Renaissance, but she was definitely a part of the Harlem scene in general. I made this about a year ago, this blend, and it's absolutely beautiful. Each element that I added has a different layer to it. Okay, I'm going to tell you what's in it and then I'm going to tell you why I did it like this. Okay, it's a black tea base. It has cacao nibs, mullen leaf, blue cornflower, orange peel, and it also has notes of bourbon and vanilla. Let me just tell you something. Two things I don't like in my tea, chocolate or a flavor of bourbon because bourbon is gross. But hear me out. First of all, (laughs) it's a very light flavor of bourbon. It's kind of more like an accent more than anything else. I would just call it like an accent. However, I wanted there to be this element of bourbon in it or kind of a flavor of smokiness to it because I think that that's reminiscent of like club atmosphere, you know, and something you might order at a club or at a bar or whatever (laughs) where jazz was often played at the time and specifically Billie Holiday would be found singing, you know, you would get an alcoholic drink. (laughs) And then the chocolate slash cacao nibs are literally just because her voice is so chocolatey and creamy and rich. Like, 
why wouldn't I put chocolate in it? And then the blue cornflowers, just so y'all know, they don't add any flavor. They're just there for looks. They add this really beautiful blue pop to the loose leaf blend. But anyway, when I incorporate it all together, I don't only not mind that there's chocolate and bourbon flavor in it. I like am obsessed with it. Like it actually tastes like I'm drinking jazz. It's amazing. Wow. Way to sell something they'll never be able to have. (laughs) Like, I was like, dang, why am I not drinking this? Yeah, so get ready to be jealous that you'll never. (laughs) All right, so I guess um, we'll do artists this week. Elisa, who's your artist? My artist this week is Hey Kala. I know we try to spotlight smaller artists, but I just adore this artist so, so much. They serve as an inspiration to me and my art. And gosh, the quality of their art is just so amazing. They are a colored ink artist and have such a wonderful understanding of light and shadow. Their line work is precise and just each illustration looks magical. They're already pretty popular, but if you haven't heard of them, I do recommend checking them out. Their art is gorgeous and honestly reminds me a lot of Studio Ghibli. Just the magical and quaint whimsy. And they just capture the wonder and beauty of the world. And I adore it. And I'm sure you will too. Well, my artist this week. Boy, howdy. I'm excited for this one. (laughs) My artist for this week is Jay Manning. They are another one of Elisa and I's best and most dearest friend from college. Jay is freaking incredible. They always offer us their undying support and love, even with this podcast, for example. They have been with us on this journey of getting our show set up from the beginning, cheering us along and recognizing our hard work. It makes my heart so warm to think of our babe, Jay, and how they are truly a lifelong friend of ours. Now that I have finished that portion of my fangirling over them, let me tell you why they are my artist of the week. Okay. So they are a visual artist, and I can't even begin to tell you how raw and emotional their pieces are. There's this piece of theirs that I have had for literally years and still catch myself staring at it on my wall all the time because it captivates me. The piece is actually called You'll Heal One Day Hun. And trigger warning here, if you have a difficult time hearing about self-harm, please skip ahead a few seconds because I am going to give a brief description of the piece and it is centered around self-harm. The colors of the piece are very simple. They actually only used three different colors, a pale yellow, a dark orange, and a deep blue. And essentially the piece depicts two arms being held up both palms facing the audience, and down the forearm are deep blue gashes that are representing self-harm. In between the two hands, it says, you will heal one day, hun. Yet you see these really deep gashes. And for me, when I look at it, it's like that feeling of being in a horrible situation and hearing people say it will get better, but also that aching feeling of just like, maybe it will be better one day, but I really wish it were better right now because right now just sucks. But also there is something healing about the words because looking back on it now and comparing yourself to times that you found that deep pain inside of you, whether it was pain that you had outwardly or inwardly. So the piece is really helpful whether you're still experiencing that pain of the moment of the deepest pain you're in. But it's also helpful in reflection, remembering those times and helping remind you how far you've come. 
Jay is not afraid to portray the deepest and darkest times of what it means to be human in their pieces. They don't shy away from heavier topics, and their art speaks to lost souls, but at the same time, they have pieces that speak to souls who aren't lost anymore, but who know how it feels to wander. They use strong and bold colors to evoke thought-provoking emotions from their audience. Please go check them out. I mean this when I say, with my whole heart of hearts, their art has broken me down, it has made me cry, and it has helped me heal in the most genuine ways that only art can do. Wow. I know. Aren't they amazing? <laughs> they they really are. I literally feel so blessed to have them in our little chosen family. Just to add on to the picture of their art that you painted, <laughs> they also have this motif of bones in a lot of their work yes. that I just adore. And like combining that, what some people would say like grim subject matter with the emotional connection that they're driving through their work, it reminds me a lot of those comics that go around a lot with the... Grim, Grim Reaper. Reaper. Yes. yes. As soon and as you ghost. said comics. Mm -hmm. yes, yes, dude. Oh my gosh, Just like yes. the raw connection and how you're literally sobbing. Yeah. Well, and I also think that I love seeing that motif that is often used, like bones, those are often used to depict some form of death. And yet Jay references death in correlation to life. So they have this juxtaposition of life and death at the same time and how often those things kind of almost feel like they coexist. It's beautiful. I love it. All right, Elisa, who's our activist this week? Let me tell you. Our activist this week is Kay Agabaye, and they are currently advocating for the End SARS movement in Nigeria, which if you care about police brutality here in the U.S., you should absolutely be advocating for the same justice across the diaspora. They actually retweeted something from user Unicorn Remy on Twitter that captures this idea perfectly. What's happening in Nigeria right now is horrifying, and exactly why solidarity with colonized folks abroad is paramount to global liberation. The bullets that are killing us in Missouri are the same bullets killing kids in Lagos. But back to Kay. Their work is mostly in the realm of prison reform, and if you don't know their name, you've definitely heard of their work. They are one of the co-creators of the 8 to Abolition website that took off this year in correlation with the mass Black Lives Matter protests and calls for police abolition or defunding. Absolutely check them out and at the very least, follow them on Twitter where their views will, quote, become yours via subtle reprogramming. Oh my gosh, I'm obsessed. Like, how iconic. They're so iconic. <laughs> All right, so... For news this week, it's not necessarily like a story like we usually do, but I guess it's a broader topic in general. <laughs> it's a couple tropes not to fall for during voting season. Okay, so a couple things. Voter beware, if you will. Okay, I see, I've seen this actually for months now because they go around all the time. You probably have seen like a ton of polls and stuff like that. Polls that say, depending on where it's coming from, <laughs> you'll probably see a poll from Fox News that says Trump is in the lead, and then you'll see one from CNN that says Biden is in the lead. Here's what really matters. Not the polls. <laughs> voting. So you have to make sure that you're actually going to the voting polls and you're not seeing the percentages or whatever that says that Biden is up. No, that doesn't mean, oh, Biden's up. I don't have to worry about it. I guess I don't have to go vote. No, 
You literally have to vote still. Don't worry about the polls. They're not really indicative of much, especially in this election. I would argue more so in other elections. I think that a lot of people have a lot of shame, as they should, <laughs> about voting for Trump. So they're not as loud about it as other people are. And because of that, I think that we really have no idea. We don't have any type of gauge. We do not have an open ballot system in the United States. And that's totally fine. Like one of the great things about having a closed ballot is that you don't have to worry about or fear for your life or anything like that, depending on how you're voting. However, because we don't have an open ballot, we really don't know how people are voting until the votes are in. Yeah, I think one of the things that happened in the 2016 election, there were so many polls and none of them, almost none of them predicted Trump winning. So a lot of people, they got complacent. They were Mm -hmm. like, I don't have to worry about it. He's not going to win. And look at us all looking like fools. Guess who done did one? Another thing that will hopefully help you on your voting journey, if you have a chance this week or the upcoming weeks, if your state allows, please, 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 please take advantage of early voting. During a pandemic, this is like my thing. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We can't all be on these streets waiting in line. If you can help it, not only will it help you stay safer, but if we can lessen the amount of people actually in line on the day of voting on November 3rd. I mean, November 3rd is going to be such a busy time. If you can make sure you're not one of the people in line, I really think that that will benefit you so much and other people around you that's another way we can keep each other safe is if we can parcel out voting as much as possible within our own means yes and if you are voting by mail or having an absentee ballot make sure that a you're using an official drop box because that's a problem i didn't know we'd be having right like what a left field issue (laughs) yes and absolutely track your ballot I recently read about a ballot drop-off box that was set on fire. So voter suppression is taking many forms this year, and you should definitely be careful and aware of where your ballot is at all times. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And while my mic is on, I'm going to go ahead and use this time to talk about the elephant in the room. Joe Jorgensen. Ew. I've been seeing so many things going around advocating for us to protest vote for her or pointing out some problematic attributes of Biden and Trump and saying like, oh, well, you can vote for someone who doesn't have one of these problems. Nobody is trying to defend Biden or Trump because there's nothing to defend. Both of them suck. But by voting for Joe Jorgensen, you are not really voting for Joe Jorgensen because here's the truth. We do not have a system set up in America that if you are not a part of the two party systems, you'll actually have a fighting chance. She doesn't have a chance to be president. You are essentially throwing away your vote and therefore you're throwing away your voice. You are absolutely valid in being a third party individual. It's valid if your politics are third party aligned. Mine certainly are. I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself aligned politically with either candidate right now up for office. However, I am definitely going to vote for one of the two people who are a valid option. It's not a protest vote. You're not doing anything effective for anybody. If you protest vote for Joe Jorgensen, all you're doing if you do that is throw away your ability to make real change. Furthermore, I wouldn't vote for Joe Jorgensen because she has a lot of problematic assertions with her current stances on a whole bunch of issues. It's just 
capitalism and conservatism parading as libertarianism. It's not real libertarianism. No, totally. And I think that that's another thing. You can be a libertarian, but if you agree with Joe Jorgensen's platforms, you're not a real libertarian. It's like she's never heard of Upton Sinclair or <laughs> yeah. or children mine workers. Or <laughs> you totally. No, you're right. You're right. I think we're getting ready to wrap up for the most part. So as always, check us out on Patreon or Ko-Fi. Also on social media, you can check us out. I did post that picture of my dear darling new kitty on Twitter, as promised, which you would see if you were following us. This is a call out post. (laughs) (laughs) Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you're interested in what next week's topic is going to be, you can also find that on our social media that we will be posting sometime in this upcoming week. I think that's it, friend, don't you? I sure do. All right, then. Bye.